I'm Pastor Corey, my wife, Pastor Erin. I think she's teaching in kids right now. And um, we have an incredible team that uh, planted the church with us about five years ago. About 30 people moved uh, to the city of Airdrie with us. And we are grateful for those early You guys remember those early days, early team? And it was like, Sean would play the keyboard and then he would run the camera and then he would change the diaper in the nursery. And then he would be back on stage by the end. And uh, man, it was like, it was crazy, but God has been faithful to us. And uh, we have a generous people and a generous house. And we knew that we knew that we could bring a little bit of the kingdom of God down to Airdrie. And uh, so uh, we're just so grateful for that early team. You wanna give them a, a hand? Cause it took a lot of faith to come with us when they came. Sean, that house that he moved to, how much extra did that house cost you here? A hundred thousand bucks. Because he thought, he thought that Airdrie needed us. And so thank you, Gibson family. We love you guys and we honor you. You're going to meet Nancy after the service. She's going to host out for us. So, all right. Thank you, Sean. Um, do you guys know who, uh, we have a summer, summer intern named Sydney uh, Lockhart. Sydney, do you want to just wave at everybody? She has to, cause she works for me. And, um, Sydney in the intake forms for the, uh, for the, our summer, uh, internship, you know, uh, the intern forms that we definitely have. Um, she checked a box that was like, I believe in equal opportunity. And, um, I asked her permission if I could share this story. Um, when she was little, she, um, she, she had a, a ham, she had hamsters when she was little and her and Macy were, were into, into Barbies, but you know, like the original Barbies, I grew up with just a brother, so we didn't play with like Barbies and stuff, but you know, the Barbies from Mattel, there was like Ken and Barbie. And then it kind of expanded the line into, you know, like pregnant Barbie and probably the different people group Barbies other than white Ken and Barbie. You know, I'm talking about like somebody, I don't know, I don't know what Barbies are. And so they decided that for, for equal opportunity, which is definitely on the intake form that we have, definitely, um, that they decided that they wanted to launch into a line of like hamster Barbies. Today's sermon is called hamster Barbies. We're talking about just stay with me, Venue Church. If you're new here, like this is what we do. Like it'll all come back around. I have people sometimes they catch me in the lobby. They're like, I never know where the heck you're going. Sometimes they don't say heck because they're new. And uh, they're like, I don't know where you're going, but you always bring it back around. Well, it's the Holy Spirit that does that. And so just wait, just wait. They're like, we need to start a, li a line of like hamster Barbies just to like spread out a little bit more, you know, share the, share the Barbie love or whatever. You know that one time they, um, they created, they, they, I, I said, well, tell me some stories about these hamsters. And she said, well, we, we, we actually had a basin full of water that we would float uh, like a plate in and put the, put the hamster on the plate. So like, think like poolside Barbie floating in the pool. Now, like vacation Barbie, except for this is a hamster, right? So can you imagine being a hamster and mom just grabbed you and put you on a plate in the middle of an ocean and you can't swim, right? Do hamsters swim? I don't know. <laughs> I would die of like simultaneous vacation heart attack, you know, hamster, Barbie, whatever. Well, one day Macy decided that, that the hamsters needed to, should probably fit into the Barbie clothes but Macy didn't have the heart to grab. Now, if you're going to put a hamster into Barbie clothes, you're going to have to hold that hamster down, right? And so Macy didn't want to. And Sydney, Sydney has a, there's something special about Sydney. 
that she's like, I'll, I'll, I'll do it. And she held that. She got that hamster. And then they, they squeezed Barbie clothes on this poor hamster. And they got this hamster into Barbie clothes. Now, it wasn't like good for the longevity of the hamster, it turns out. I said to them, uh, sorry, hamster lovers. I said to them, these are just little girls. Can you imagine? Her father, Lee, is like, Sydney worries us. And I said, did the hamster have a name? And she said, well, no, we went through a lot of hamsters. I'm like, I see that. I see. She's like, there was always more at the, at the, st at the store. There was always more hamsters at the store. I'm like, yeah. Um, that should be on our... <laughs> we like to kill our instinct at venue church. Like, just get people to day camps. We'd be like, I brought these kids to day camps, Pastor. That's great. Like, why are they crying? Do their parents know they hurt? You just, you just got a bunch of kids to day camps. No, don't do it that way. Do it legit. <laughs> we like to kill our instinct. Now we've added to our, our summer internship program, you know, a box that says, like, have you had any alarming incidents with hamsters that we need to know about? But it's too late. She's with us now. And, uh, and she's helping out with day camps. So it's going to be awesome. Um, now listen, as difficult as squeezing a hamster, it's coming back around, into Barbie clothes, um, as difficult as that is, the king of Nineveh finally gets the message from Jonah, who's been running from God, and the king of Nineveh gets the message, and he asks his people to do like the equivalent of like hamster Barbie. He asked him to do something that's very difficult and very unusual that the text is going to bring out in the Bible today. And you're going to see that God actually turned away from his wrath and changed the destiny of that great city Nineveh and his people. And, and, but as, as difficult as squeezing a, um, a hamster into Barbie clothes, you know, I was thinking, you and I, when we get stuck in like weird emotional ruts, us getting out of those is like trying to squeeze a hamster into Barbie clothes. I was thinking about this. I was thinking like those long standing, some of them, they're like family line stubbornnesses and those ruts that we get in, like, this is just how we do it. Or those, um, those things in your that get in your head and you start getting stuck in, in, in ruts. Is, am I just preaching to myself here? Um, as difficult as now, now listen, when God sends correction to you, you're going to see here, when God sends Jonah to Nineveh, uh, there's no way to maintain control while you're being corrected. Because the society today is like, you control everything. You can. You can trust you. Right? You control everything. But when God sends somebody to you, there's no way to be uh, corrected without giving up a measure of control. In fact, Jesus himself said like, Jason, you can't find your life until you lose it. And society's like, find your life by finding it. That cannot be done. Jesus says you find it by losing it. You, health is for helping. You know, like it's kind of an anti what we're hearing right now. Um, see, you controlling got you into the mess that you needed correcting from, right? I mean, that was you. That was your decisions. I controlled this. I got into this mess. That's why I need correcting. So it would make sense then that you can't get corrected without giving up control. Paul, the apostle, says to the Romans, I know nothing good lives in me. 
You're like, Paul, the apostle, there was something good in him. Now what he's doing, he's, he's just wisely telling us like, there's two of you. So there's the part in you that, that God made and that God breathes on that, look, if you were just the result of an evolutionary process without a maker, why would there be something inside of you that's like, I should probably help somebody today? Like any good inside of you has to come from somewhere. Cause if it was just like kill or be killed, you wouldn't care. Like you wouldn't be like, I should probably be nice to somebody today. Like, where does that come from? Right? So there's two parts of you. Paul's like, there's a part of me that's good and spiritual and connects with God. But then there's this other thing called the flesh. And, and he says this of the flesh, nothing good lives in me. That is in my sinful nature. So I got the sin part and then I got the great part. He says, I want to do what, what's right, but I can't. I want to do what's good, but I don't. This is Paul the apostle. He's like, I don't want to do what's wrong, but I do it anyways. Paul has gotten to this place in his life that we need to get to, that he's like, I'm done defending my flesh. Because my flesh is stupid and sinful and it just wants instant gratification, but it doesn't want to like pay the long-term price. Come on, we've all been there. It's like my flesh just it makes me do the things that I regret and the things that hurt people and the things that hurt myself. And uh, he says, the flesh makes me do stupid stuff. And he goes, I'm done defending stupid. Like he's like, you ever do that? He's like, I'm done defending stupid. Now listen, it's hard to correct it and protect it at the same time. I'm talking about like long-standing ruts that we get stuck in. It's hard to protect it, to correct it and protect it at the same time. See, the world is all about like, hey, protect it. Don't let anybody tell you. And God's like, well, I can't correct it if you're going to protect it. You can't correct it and protect it at the same time. So how do we get into this place where we stop protecting our, have your, have your thought patterns ever gotten into a rut? You just start thinking wrong. Like you're at the same job that you were at last week, but you're not happy anymore. And, uh, and your brain is like, you're not happy. You're worth more than this. And it starts talking to you. Right. And all of a sudden you stop, stop seeing the good things. And you start seeing all the bad things. Is anybody married? At first, when you're dating, you're like, oh, it's not that bad. They're not that bad. It's cute. Yeah. We've been married long enough that it's not cute. And I'm not cute when I forget directions. Like, I will be like, give me the, you know, I'll be in the pantry. I'm like, there's no, Aaron, where's the peanut butter? And she will start giving me directions. As soon as she says the first thing, I, I don't hear anything that comes after that. I'm not even sure I hear the first thing. And she will get up and walk across the house and be like, it's exactly where I told you, third shelf on the left beside the yellow container of something. And I'm like, there's so many words. She's like, your hand is on it right now. I'm like, how do you? I'm like, it's not here. Aaron, you need, we need more peanut butter. It's not here. That was cute, you know, 20 years ago, that was cute. Does your heart ever get into weird places? Because society today is like, hey, trust your heart. Can't, the Bible says the human heart is deceitful above all things. You trust your heart. You know what your heart's never going to say? That your heart is wrong. 
when you dated that idiot that your mom was like, don't date that person. Your heart told you to. Your, that seemed like a good idea to your heart. You know what I mean? And we protect it and we like trust it. But your heart gets you into weird messes. Your brain gets you into weird messes. Your brain, this is going to be a shock to some of you. The last dumb thing you did, your brain told you to. And you know what it didn't do is be like, that's on me. That's dumb. You shouldn't listen to me anymore. You should read the Bible and do what it tells you. Because this is not, your brain's like, I I'm still too fleshly to make good decisions. You know, um, there's strategic ways that God has for us to start unprotecting our flesh so that we can get out of those ruts that we find ourselves in because we get in like, you know, like head ruts and heart ruts and physical ruts. And there's some things we were helping a, a young family. I think it's good young parents to go and get help from people who have successfully raised children because it's all a theory till they're 16. And some of your theories, I've, I'm a pastor's kid. I have watched your theories work out in generations and they don't work. Until they're 16, then everybody knows that you didn't know what you're... And that we had a very wise young couple come and ask us. And I'm like, well, there's a few things because your kids get stuck in ruts too, right? Anybody have kids? And your kid is like in the room and playing with their sister and like, my toy, my toy, my toy. You know, they get stuck and then anger makes sense. And then they start getting lippy with mom, which in my home growing up was like, man, pack your bag and go to Mexico. Because around here... If you want dinner, mom is above you. She is to be respected and honored in this home. That toy you're playing with belongs to mother. Those underpants belong to her and she's letting you wear them. The air you breathe belongs to mom. That's not your room, that's mom's room. She lets you sleep in that bed, isn't mom good? And so what happens is what we suggested is we're like, hey, we find that this works with parenting. And so you have to take your child or you're a childish adult like we get. You got you to gotta uproot them from the place that they got stuck in and uproot them. That's why you send a kid to their room to start thinking, right? Re-engage your brain and start remembering what you actually said, not what you think happened. Because when you're angry, the devil will start whispering all these things and you get all these feelings, but that's not actually what went down. And so you remove them, put them into this place here, and then it has to become like, I remove my flesh from where it's comfortable and where it makes sense into this other place where I got to start getting like uncomfortable. And we find that to get out of those emotional ruts and out of those ruts that we get in, discomfort actually becomes our friend and our ally. And there has to be a level of discomfort that gets us out of those things and puts us into a place where we're no longer in control, right? Because our control landed us over here. Now, um, there's those long-standing emotional ruts that you guys have. Now, an emotional rut just starts with something that we think one time or we feel one time and then we just start walking down a path and then it starts like wearing the path down. Does that make sense? And then if you've ever driven on a road, I took a Suburban with like 22 inch rims one time down the I-5 in Portland. And I realized that everybody in Portland drives a small car with tiny tires because there was about a, an inch of rut, tire rut that the tiny cars have carved out that my giant rims did not fit in. And a long-standing emotional rut is something that it's just a path that you start going down. But to get out of that rut and into the life that God wants you to live, it's going to take some discomfort to get out of. Now, um, ruts are formed uh, quickly 
and broken slowly. So just be prepared with that. But God has something here because, listen, the real issue in your life is that you need a heart change. And you need a mind change. And the world today tells you, like, you can do, you can change that. Or if you're with the right person, because it's not your problem, it's you're not with the right person yet. You don't have the right job yet. You spend your whole life, like, trying to get the right friends when that's not really the point. The point is being the right friend. Because the reason you don't think that you have the right friends is because you're not the... Like, stop trying to find the right person and try to be the right person. Because if God would bring you the... Listen, if God would bring you the right person... Come on, single ladies, do you like that thing I did last? If God would bring you the right person and you're not ready yet, you're the wrong person for them. And the people that you want don't hang out with people like you yet. So we've got to get out of these, some of these ruts that we're in. Um, some of us um, will we'll form like a stress rut. Anybody in stress go to really weird places? Come on, just be honest. Stress. We get like stressful and then we just get into this. Like you get locked up and you get angry or you get so focused on one thing you can't see anything else. And then you start getting stressed out about the wrong things maybe. You get panicky. You go comatose and go to sleep. Pastor Aaron, stress sleep. Like, fainting goat, boom, I'm out. I'm out. And hopefully, Corey takes care of everything. Um, some of us, um, relational, we, we, we go to like the victim rut. Eventually, every relationship that you're in, just look back, and every relationship that you're in, you eventually become the victim of their decisions, right? And then you become, it becomes this, it's really, its roots are in self-pity, but they're really in the brokenness that God hasn't healed you of yet because you haven't gone to a freedom group. You can get past your past, but you haven't walked through it yet. And so every relationship that you're in eventually, every job that you have eventually, your boss becomes the devil. You know what I mean? In your heart and in your mind. And you get into this victim place. And you start thinking of yourself like, I'm the victim of other people's decisions. And then you come to church and you're like, I knew it was the devil. And I knew it. And I'm the victim of the devil's decisions in my life. And God's like, you're the what? Of what? You're the victim. Jesus hung on a cross, not a victim. And brought salvation. In spite of everything that the devil tried to do. You know, God's like, no, you're a child of God. You're not a victim. And so how do we break out of those, uh, those ruts? Some of us, we get into like workplace ruts where, you know, your first day at work, you're not late, right? Well, nowadays, oh my goodness. But like, but, but if by day two, you're like, somebody will cover for me. You know, Homer Simpson, right? Like somebody cover for me. I'm going to be late. You know, my coffee pot didn't work. And rather than go to work without coffee and show up on time, I preach into the, because the first service was honest. <laughs> you know, you get into this place where, you're, where you just get a little bit lazy. You just take your foot off the gas. And all of a sudden, you're having to be told the things that you used to do when your heart was in a better place. And the things you used to do, uh, now your heart's a little hard or you're a little lazy. Or you get stuck in these little weird, or somebody gives you power over something. People get in power ruts. And, you know, you give somebody a little power. You give Chad a little power. And he's like, Finally! Now people are going to crawl, right? Has it ever happened to somebody? Like somebody, you, you put the wrong kid in the family in charge of something and they're like, yeah, I'm dad. Say it. Call me dad, kids. Like you're eight, you know? And you get into these weird little ruts with people in this weird little like thing where you forget that leaders are servants, right? You think is it, you get into weird sleeping ruts or eating ruts, right? Some of us, the reason you don't have energy is because you're not sowing energy. This is 
like really weird, but you reap what you sow, right? So some of us were like, I just need to sleep, but you're already sleeping 14 hours a day. And you're watching Netflix, which is basically like sleeping. And because, but some of us, see, the reason that we can't sleep at night is because we don't get up till noon. My brother told me one time, he's like, anybody can sleep till 10. He's like, but you got to work at it to sleep till like afternoon. I'm like, do you? He comes out of his room one day and I remember, cause my dad was not a big into sleeping in and he comes out of his room and he's like holding his head. He's like, Oh, I got the too much sleep headache. <laughs> you know, my dad, my dad is a, is a wise man. He said to me one time, he said, if you're not in the habit of getting up to an alarm clock at a decent time in the morning, when you wake up, by the time you finally wake up now, it's good to sleep in and vacation. Like I get that. But he's like, if, if it's a habit that you're not waking up to an alarm clock, you wake up feeling guilty. And then you do what guilty people do. And then you start treating people badly. You're like, guilty people do that? Yes. Your husband told me. As you do, you feel guilty about it. Candace, your husband told me. It's the same because you're not disciplined. You're not a disciplined person. Some of you need to work harder in the day so you can sleep at night. People who work for the Lord and people who are serving have no trouble sleeping because they're tired. Watching Netflix won't tire you out. Is this good? I, I had somebody that was in a superstitious rut sometime, one time. You're like, I'm not superstitious. I'm like, you're not. You're not in an argument. You don't get superstitious. Like, if I don't stand up for myself right now. And God's like, um, why don't you let me worry about that? And why don't you just do the right thing? You're like, no, I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to fight. I'm going to fight for my right for respect. And God's like, why don't you let me do that? Here's the right thing. Why don't you forgive? Like, I'm not going to until he shapes up. I'm not going to. And God's like, that's never really going to happen. If you're married to a man, by the way, <laughs> I will get kind of closer, but you know, like it's this thing where we just get all superstitious. I had somebody, uh, when, when pastor Nate preached for the very first time, you remember pastor Nate, he's my buddy from uh, substance church and his pastor, Peter is my pastor. And, and uh, Peter and Nate actually were here in the early days of the church plant. And God was really trying to set us up and me up with my pastor, you know, but I had a family that that they had literally, we had just baptized them. Like I think the month before or two months before just baptized them. So like, she's totally new and he had kind of like grown up in church and then fell away and lived like a life outside of, and then he was finally back with God. And so we, we had the privilege of baptizing them and they heard pastor Nate speak and then things started getting weird. And so, and then I hear like from one of her small groups or something, I think somebody told me like, she seemed a little off today. This was on like a Wednesday or something. I, Dates to me, you'll forgive me if it was a Tuesday. Yeah. I kind of like remember stuff. So, um, spreadsheets, man, like stressful. <laughs> My stress place is like, don't show me a spreadsheet. Don't say the word schedule. I'm like, I don't know. People will come. Like people will come to day camps and like, yeah, because we scheduled them for you because you don't do well with schedules. It's your stress place. And so, so things started getting weird. And then Friday, so it's date night now and we're church planting and it's difficult. And our family was in a tough place and, uh, God has redeemed that by the way. But I'll tell you, we were in a tough place and I'm just like, we just need to get to date night. It's Friday night. Aaron and I just need to get to date night. And, uh, and my wife tells me it's like four or five o'clock. Like there's something really wrong with him. And if you don't talk to them, they're going to leave the church. And I'm like, about what? Well, something about pastor Nate's sermon. I'm like, that was on Sunday. That was like five days ago. In five days, we went from, Hey, we just baptized you and rededicated you to Christ. And now you're five days. 
And this was it. I, so I'm like, and I learned my lesson. I don't do this anymore on date time. If you want to get weird, do it. Don't do it on my date night. Because I don't, I'm like, you work it out. I called, I spent like a half an hour, an hour on the phone with him on, on, with him on, on my date night. And if I can't talk you into something in an hour, there's something wrong with you. And I'm just like, what's the problem? Well, we felt, we, we have a bad feeling about him. And I'm like, I have a bad feeling about you, this conversation. It's date night. I don't make decisions based on bad feelings. I make decisions based on what the word of God says. I'll make emotionally driven decisions. Man, I'd be all over the map. I'd be the craziest. I'm already crazy. You don't want a leader who makes emotional decisions because I got a bad feeling about Jen. I got a bad feeling about Jen. I'm going to, what? I, I decide to have good feelings about people. We have a bad feeling. We don't, we don't feel like we have a bad feeling. We feel like he was bragging about how much money he had. I'm like, did you, because he did actually, I think he owned like 27 franchises for phone companies or something. And he did make a lot of money. But I'm like, did you forget the part where he took an 11, 12 pay cut to work at the church? Did you miss that part? That he was bragging not about how much, he, he was bragging about how none of that mattered. And then God called him and he's like, now my life matters. You know what I mean? Like, did you miss that part? And I kept talking about like, no, no, you guys got to trust me. You got to trust me in this thing. And I'm, the whole time I'm thinking, I feel like we just baptized you. And now you know more because of a bad feeling. You had a bad feeling about it. I got a bad feeling. Listen, it could be the Holy Spirit or it could be the devil. If you got a problem with money, you'll have bad feelings about people who have it. If you have a problem with generosity, you'll find a problem with somebody who's generous. How do you know, pastor? It's the Holy Spirit. I got a bad feeling about it. <laughs> you get stuck, we get stuck in unforgiveness ruts. Um, uh, a gentleman at Venue Church, he, uh, and I share this with his permission, uh, my dad was telling me the story about, about he had his, 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 he grew up in church culture, his dad was in business with a bunch of church people that ripped him off and stole from him. This is why our church is structured with accountability. Because church people can get as weird as anybody else, but then God told us to do weird stuff. Until like your small group leader is like, dude, stay with your wife. God's not telling you to move on, right? Like accountability. Like you need people and brothers and sisters who are like, you did what? You're thinking of doing what? Oh my goodness, that no, was crazy. And so, but there was this church without accountability. It was just church with politics. And so he had a list of, he had a book actually where he wrote down the names of everybody who had ever hurt his dad, hurt him. He wrote a list of names. And he gave that book up a couple of weeks ago and said, I'm going to forgive this book belongs to God. I don't need that. I'm going to let God worry about it. My life is not going to, I'm not going to be the victim of these people and their bad decisions. I'm not going to be the victim. Of, I'm going to let God work out my justice for me. Discomfort is the catalyst of change. It's not the enemy of it. It's the, it's the catalyst of change. My job is to add tomorrow's discomfort from the consequence of where we're going and the emotional ruts we're going. I have to bring tomorrow's discomfort when you wake up and you're like, and I've lost it all. I have to add a little bit of that to today. So it makes today's change make sense. But then today's seed that you sow will seem very small. I have an action step for you. It'll seem very small to bring you a great harvest over here. But I have to bring discomfort into today. That's why our sermons are... That's why it's uncomfortable to come to Venue Church. You come to Venue Church, it's like, whew, that was a workout. Like, how was it? It was challenging. Good. Because God has a great harvest for you. We sowed a little seed. God's going to bring 
peace that you can't imagine, he's going to bring it. Now, then the Lord spoke to Jonah a second time. Aren't you glad that God speaks a second time when you didn't do what he said the first time? Get up, go, go to the great city. He's like, I haven't changed my mind. The directions haven't changed. You might be miles away from your destiny, but inches away from the last thing God told you to do. He said, deliver the message I've given you. This time Jonah obeyed the Lord's command and went to Nineveh, a city so large it took three days to see it all. In the 7th century BC, there's, the scholars think that this could have been like the largest city in the, in the world at the time. So like the four ancient city mounds were about 60 miles in circumference, like 60 miles to walk around. Uh, a 5th century scholar I, I read um, uh, recorded that some of the walls were 30 meters tall and 15 meters wide. Like it's a big place. You don't build those walls by yourself. You build them with slaves that you whip. That's how this entire nation was formed. You're like, the pyramids. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, come on. This is the culture that this is why Jonah was resisting it. Because the Assyrians in their day were a brutal culture. Violent is like the horrible thing. You've never seen a movie as violent as these guys did. And that's why Jonah resisted it. Because he's like, I don't think that you should save them. And God's like, well, I saved you. And God saves because God is good. And he's better than you. And he's better than me. And that's a good thing. <laughs> On the day Jonah entered the city, he shouted to the crowds, 40 days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. So 40 days. He's like, you guys have 40 days before the whole thing goes up in flames or whatever. 40 days. Like, do something. Generation after generation after generation of emotional ruts and violence ruts and like might makes right and I, I've got a stronger arm and I can take what I want and do whatever I want to to your, come on, I can do whatever I want. Generation after generation piling sin on top of sin has got them to this place and, and Jonah comes in like a locker room dad and kicks a chair across the room and like, you call that skating? If you ever want ice cream again, you'll get out there. Come on, millennials are like, oh. I'm like, dude, that's what it was like when we were kids. It's like something big is happening. And this crazy looking prophet comes in at the risk of his own life. He comes in, pronounces this, but it says this, watch. The people of Nineveh believe God's message. And from the greatest to the least, they declared a fast and put on burlap to show their sorrow. So they clothed themselves in sackcloth. Sackcloth was um, made out of, it could be camel's hair or made out of hemp. But the idea of sackcloth being, it's extremely uncomfortable against your skin. So they would take the, you know, because nobody, nobody chooses to wear uncomfortable. This sweater is comfortable. That's why I like it. But if this sweater was made of camel fur and I turned the fur on the inside, it would not be comfortable. And so there's something in this sackcloth idea here that we need to get a hold of because it's uncomfortable. Because God is saying, you have to get uncomfortable in here and maybe getting uncomfortable on the outside will push some of that inside so that we actually avoid the consequence to our sin. And uh, so we make some changes and God's like, look, I need to change your hearts, but you can't do that. So I'm going to, so, so they did what they could do in that they changed their something on the outside so that God could drive something towards the inside. I've been holding this water bottle. I should probably I'm worrying somebody like, he looks thirsty, just, just hydrate. Um, now, Jonah dreaded this, and he, he probably was like worried that he would die, like you would. 
But it's funny. Um, I think this was a relief to the people of Nineveh because I think that they knew. And they're like, yeah, we know. It's been coming. Don't, when you invite your neighbor to church, they know. They already know that they need to go. They already know that they need God. They know that they need something that they don't have. And the more that they tell you that they don't need churches, the more that inside they're like, I need church. But they're protecting it, right? They just haven't learned not to protect the flesh anymore. When the king of Nineveh heard what Jonah was saying, he stepped down from his throne, powerful. He stepped, he got out of the living room with his toys. He stepped down from his throne. He took off his royal robes, which are soft and nice and filled with gold and all the things. He dressed himself in burlap and sackcloth in a potato sack and sat in a heap of ashes. He's like, the fire is coming. I'm going to sit in what it's going to look like so that it drives something home. I'm going to... I said to somebody, the greatest motivation you have to have to fix this marriage is that if you won't, your kids are going to have the same conversation with somebody one day. And if you won't go after God and be the right person that you need to be, your kids will have the same ruts that you have. That's why we fight. I'm not saying every marriage works out, but I'm saying that's why we work hard because it is unacceptable to me that my daughters are going to fight the same fight that I fought. Unacceptable. Now... Then the king and his nobles sent this decree throughout the city. No one, not even animals from your herds and flocks, may eat or drink anything at all. They're fasting. Not even the animals. People, I love this. Click. People, ready? And, I can't point to this, it's a big LED wall. And animals alike must wear garments of mourning and everyone must pray earnestly to God. They must turn from their evil ways and stop all their violence and animals alike. Who can tell? Perhaps even yet God will change his mind and hold back his fierce anger from destroying us. When God saw, ready, what they had done. There's way too much now. There's way too much now with like, I didn't intend that. And everybody around us is like, yes, you did. Like, that's why you do stuff, right? Because you meant to. Uh, unless you're like four. He saw what they had done and how they had put a stop to their evil ways. He changed his mind and did not carry out the destruction that he had threatened and that they deserved. He saw what they had done. We live in a day now where we're like, yeah, but I, there's, you know, I worship in, in my heart. And God's like, you need to worship outside of your heart. I need to see what you're doing. Because the people of Nineveh, ready? And us. We have like a heart problem. That's why you get stuck. That's why marriages get stuck. That's why we get stuck in addictions. Because we have heart problems. And we have head problems. The people of Nineveh, they had heart problems and head problems. But it says, when God saw what they had done, what's he talking about? Well, he's talking about all they did was change their clothes to something uncomfortable. All they did was change their clothes and change the clothes of their animals. Can I? If you would add a little humiliation, y'all go home and try to get the neighbor's cat into clothes. Now, if violence was bleeding out with people, violence was bleeding out to animals. And God's like, okay, you'd normally kick that cat. I want you to be kind to it. And gently now, gently, 
gently. Everybody's going to be destroyed, including that cat. Gently. Let's help them in there and then let's keep them in there because we have to stay in a place of repentance and see if God will change our fortune. And I realized, you know, there are the things that you used to do and the small, uncomfortable acts of service that when your heart gets hard, become difficult. Come on, moms. Changing diapers when you didn't think you could have a baby was not a big deal. But then after a few kids, you're like, changing diapers is, and you're wrestling that cat into that diaper. Come on. And all of a sudden, your heart gets a little hard, and you're not grateful for what God gave you anymore. And there are people who would love that baby, but you have that baby, and you're not grateful anymore, and it seems like a big deal. And some of us, we want a relationship, but the small, uncomfortable things that we'll do when our hearts are soft, we stop doing. And God's like, I need to see what you'll do to see if I can change your heart. And he's like, I have the power of heaven to unlock in your situation, in your addiction, but I need you to unlock the, the key, which means help somebody else with theirs. I need, health is for helping. I need you to help somebody. Some of us were like, God is like, send a text of encouragement to somebody. And you're like, I need the text of encouragement. And God's like, sow it. You need to do it. Because if your heart was not hard, you would do it. You would encourage people. And God's like, I'm waiting to encourage you, but I can't because that is your job. I'll bring the supernatural. I'll do the heart change. Come on. Does anybody need a heart change? Somebody needs a heart change at work. Somebody needs a heart change in the marriage. Somebody needs their husband to have a heart change. The best seed for a heart change is those small, uncomfortable acts of service with a cheerful smile so that God can change your heart so that God can get to them. Now, as we ask for the presence of the Holy Spirit, Father, we ask, Holy Spirit, come upon us. But as we do this, we know that we need to honor you and you need to see what we do. And Father, we choose to dress ourselves in sackcloth right now. And we choose to, to do those little uncomfortable acts of service. But Father, what we really need is a move from God to change hearts right now in Jesus' name.